Engaging Leader Episode 30, Why Emotional Intelligence Isn't Enough for Superior Leadership. Does your leadership inspire trust, passion, and action? Welcome to the Engaging Leader Podcast with Jesse Leahy, consultant, writer, and speaker. Jesse has helped executives engage hundreds of thousands of people. Join us now for principles to communicate, engage, and lead with greater impact. Welcome to the show, leaders. My guest today is David Burnham, who has performed research on what superior leaders do and how they think for over 40 years in industry and in academics and government. And David was one of the first voices that I heard many years ago calling for a new approach to leadership, one that focuses more on emotional intelligence and mutuality. And there have been a lot of voices in recent years that have picked that up and a lot of great examples of that. It seems like a lot of the focus has been so much on emotional intelligence that other components of superior leadership have been lost. David, welcome to the Engaging Leader Podcast. Thank you, Jesse. Delighted to be here. Can you share with us the story of how you discovered the changing dynamics of leadership a few decades ago? Well, yes, Jesse. Um, For many years, uh, I worked with Dr. David McClelland, who was my business partner and my mentor, and who was chairman of the uh, psychology social relations department at Harvard University. And what interested us long ago now, literally in the uh, 1970s, was could we differentiate or could we discover what was the difference between leaders of major divisions of uh, large corporations and CEOs who were consistently over time delivering superior performance defined as top quartile growth in sales, revenues, EBIT, as compared to those whose performance over the same time periods was variable or even above average. And what we discovered then is still true today, but with a very substantial change that the leaders who were very successful then delivering superior performance were, and in fact, even today still are, particularly concerned about what was the influence and impact that they were making on their customer base, on their clients, and on their employees. It is they saw themselves, they thought about being the visionary, the charismatic leader who was primarily accountable for and responsible for setting directions and for delivering results. And they were particularly good at getting people to follow them, which requires very high emotional intelligence. By the late 80s, early 1990s, men and women who had these characteristics were still doing well as leaders, but often they were not delivering superior performance the way they used to. So what interested me at the time was what's changed. Well, if you look at the overall environment, what changed, of course, was the business and technology had changed remarkably. 
we couldn't, as you and I are talking, talk on Skype. We couldn't do a podcast. Now we can. We couldn't look at the internet. Our employees couldn't look at the internet. Our customers couldn't look at the internet. And that dramatically changed, which accelerated competitive advantage for people. It meant that people at every level had access to what was going on in the marketplace, in other companies, in their customers' companies. And also what changed was that when we were first doing this research in the 1970s, women by and large were present in large organizations only in what was then called personnel, now called HR. While by the 1990s, women were in marketing, women were in sales, women were everywhere, manufacturing. They may not comprise a large proportion of the CEO population, although it was almost zero, maybe two women in the 70s, but elsewhere, many more. And of course, the demographic basis had changed a lot. And so had the nature of business. Business was multinational, international, across boundaries, across cultures, and our cultural expectations about working changed. No longer did most people feel that they had to stay in their companies, they had to stay in their jobs. If they weren't getting recognized, promoted, challenging work, they voted with their feet, or at least they felt they could vote with their feet, except in recessions. So in the early 90s, 1992, we initiated another study, this time a very lengthy study. We went over a 12-year performance period in eight countries and 13 industries, and we looked at leaders who over that lengthy period were delivering consistently superior performance as compared to leaders who were delivering above average performance. So we weren't comparing poor, because most poor leaders don't keep their jobs, <laughs> but we were comparing the good guys, the good women, the good men with the great men. Much as Jim Collins did, Jim Collins, however, was looking at, at secondary data not primary data, and we had access to primary data, the leaders themselves. And we measured a number of things, but most importantly, we measured using probably the most used psychometric instrument in the world, the uh, test of imagination or the exercise of imagination, which we then coded for the underlying thoughts or motives which drove the behaviors of leaders, as well as the stages that drove their behavior. Now, just for the benefit of our audience, the exercise of imagination involves a, an individual being asked to write a series of six stories, and then a trained professional sort of does like a, a psychoanalysis of those stories, reading what's subliminally there in the thinking behind the stories? Well, you've got almost right, <laughs> because the, it's actually a half a dozen professionals. And they're not 
interpreting those stories from the psychoanalytic point of view, because the data would show if you did that, you'd get six different interpretations. Rather, they're using coding systems, which were developed over decades of research that are very specific, and people can learn how to do them so that three coders code the same six stories. 98% of the time, they will agree. Uh, so there's only a 2% difference between them, which is nothing. And what they're coding for are the underlying thoughts in everyday life, not clinical psychological interpretation. But what is it that in everyday life the individual is thinking about? So we know that in leadership, there are three thoughts that occur most frequently. One is a short-term focus on competing. Now, that's not competing with another company's performance. The underlying unconscious thought is, I want to compete. I want to be better. And so the behavior that drives is do it yourself. Take over. Because really... You'd rather do it all yourself. And one of the difficulties of being a leader with this thought is when you can't do it yourself, you tend to be seen as very autocratic or neglecting everything so that you can devote your time to that which you can do yourself. Another thought is affiliation. I really want people to like me. And another thought is impact and influence. I really want to make an impact. And that impact and influence thought was present in the 70s. But what changed significantly, both in the 70s and in this research study, which went right through uh, mid-2005, leaders were very high in emotional intelligence, effective leaders. But so were most above average leaders. And so were most average leaders. That is, high emotional intelligence got them the job, for the most part. What it didn't do was differentiate performance. Isn't that something? Yeah, we become good, I think, at reading and interviewing. Does this person have high emotional intelligence? So by and large, we're selecting for that relatively well. What we're not selecting for are the other characteristics, the other thoughts that really make a difference. And first, effective leaders in the past were really great at holding people responsible. So here's your job. Let me lay it out for you. Let me tell you exactly what to do. Now go do it. And that still accounts for good leadership. Great leaders differentiate between responsibility and accountability. They say, this is what you have to deliver. Do you agree? And then they say, this is when we need it. Now, give me a plan as to how you're going to get there. Whereas good leaders say, let me tell you how to get there. Now, good leaders say the reason you have to do that is if you ask people for a plan, they don't know how to get there in any way I know best. 
great leaders say, we can discuss the plan, but unless the person makes the plan, then ultimately I end up holding the bag, I'm accountable. If they make the plan, particularly if they make it with their team or with the people that are going to deliver it, it's much more likely to be delivered to a high standard. So it's delegating not just the responsibility, but delegating the planning and the decision-making. That's right. And the underlying thought for that is returning the authority to others to figure out how they're going to deliver what they're accountable for, and then to hold them accountable for execution of their plan. So that's one. Two, great leaders do not jump quickly. That is, they don't see things as black and white choices. So typical decision, shall we buy, shall we make? Often seen as a black and white decision. Shall we invest in upgrading this system or shall we throw it out and start again? Shall we merge or shall we grow organically? Black and white decisions. Mm -hmm. Good leaders in the past, great leaders, often made those decisions very quickly and usually their instincts led them to make excellent bets. So they kept in advance of the curve through their own intuition, through their own ability to make the bets, if you will. Well, things weren't moving as fast then, number one. And number two, it took years to gain the information, years that they often had to make those bets. Today, things move so quickly. Oh, that's right. Number one. And number two, because they move so quickly, trends don't necessarily predict the future. Great companies have to be prepared for very uncertain futures, for things that may change dramatically. And when that's true, that means not only do you need to involve others in making those bets, but you can't see them as black and white. You have to see the paradox that the potential exciting future that this trend predicts may disappointingly not materialize because a counter trend may appear very quickly and change that. So when that occurs, if you bet the farm, if you're not poised and flexible to change things, to go with the new direction, to capitalize on it, you can be left behind very quickly. And so great leaders think in complex terms and they think about the paradox of how even exciting and certain trends can go out the window and be very disappointing if you've invested in nothing else. And so, they involve people in exploring both the need for change and the uncertain future and being prepared for multiple scenarios, for multiple futures and, and being excited about being able to change as opposed to disappointed when the change doesn't turn out to be the one that you predicted. And so they therefore 
stay on top of the trends and deliver results. And finally, another thing that's highly differentiating is in the past, it was enough to avoid failure. That is, go to the analyst conference as the CEO, be prepared to say, we're going to succeed at all things. And if you did have a setback, be prepared to explain it. That still works. You can deliver good performance and a good share price that way, a good stock price. What great leaders do is go beyond that. They're saying, this is why we exist. Let me tell you what our customers' needs really are, how they're changing, and how keeping ahead of customer needs in this marketplace, we have products that are working now and we're prepared with products for the future that will continue to meet customers' needs. And we're proud of that and our customers echo it. And that's why our stock price is doing so well. So they're purpose-driven as opposed to straight visionary. The charismatic leader was visionary. Look at me and follow me. The great leader today we call that leader, the interactive leader. The great leader today is purpose-driven. So they're as high in emotional intelligence as the great leaders of the 70s. But the great leader of the 70s is using their emotional intelligence and the good leader today to inspire people to follow them. The great leader today is using their emotional intelligence to create the we. We're all in this together. Our customers, our employees, our shareholders, we are in this together. And we have to chart a course for the future together. And so he or she is paying attention to all those constituencies, consulting them regularly and including them in the decision-making process, in the information loop, not informing them, but including them. And that's very different. So what do you think, Jesse? Have I laid out the differences for you clearly enough? I think so. So you talked about four things that have been new in the past couple of decades. The thing that's the same among great leaders is the overall focus on having an impact and an influence. But what's new today is, number one, this concept of return of authority. Yes. Number two is uh, recognizing the paradox and complexity of the new world, so have, having some flexibility. Uh, number three is uh, being purpose-driven. Yes. And having some pride about why we exist. And then number four is creating the we. So we are, we're in this together and we are planning and creating together. Yes, well summarized, Jesse. I see so many organizations that are focusing their training opportunities on only one of those factors. Or in particular, you see a lot of training these days that is focusing on emotional intelligence. Is that likely to prove effective? I mean, if emotional intelligence is important, then shouldn't that make a difference? Or is, that, is there an actual danger there? Well, I think it does make a difference, particularly for the leader who has very little of it. But it's not sufficient. 
because a leader may have a lot of it and still not be delivering superior performance. It isn't sufficient because it's a system. Leadership, being an effective leader, requires a systemic approach. In fact, interesting, one of the the, uh, consistent findings in our research is that average leaders are very high in mutuality. That is the we. Mm -hmm. However, they're also high in achievement motivation, which means that they're extremely effective with people, but what they're driven to do is to look inward. That is, the focus of competition becomes inward. And so they want to compete with their colleagues at the same level, with other division heads. And because the focus of competition is inwards and not on pleasing the customer, not on staying ahead of the customer curve, except as that happens to coalesce with whatever they may be thinking competitively. Ironically, although you would think that their competitive focus would cause them to do very well, in fact, they don't. So it's the worst possible combination because people are so thrilled with their high mutuality that they buy into these very short-term focused goals that may have nothing to do with what customer needs now are or about to be. So in the end, high morale and poor outcomes, or at least average outcomes. I could see that pitfall happening in sales departments where you have a lot of the sales managers have great people skills but they may have the short-term competitive focus. I want to meet, be the one that yes. meets quota this month. There is the, the sales leader for this month, and that, that could have uh, unintended consequences. Yes. Yes, very interesting. We often do studies um, within organizations, and uh, so I can give you direct data that uh, validates your hypothesis, Jesse. <laughs> so, looking at um, a retail bank, at division managers uh, who, in a sense, are also sales managers because retail bank branches, of course, are supposed to sell more of the product, more accounts, more mortgages, more credit cards, more deposits, more loans. And ironically, those who are achievement motivated, the leaders, not who the branch managers report to, those who are achievement motivated, but with high mutuality, high people skills, most of the branch managers are pleased to report to them, but their short-term focus is so high. How do we do this month on credit cards? That people pull out all the stops on credit cards And in order to do that, when that's the only focus, of course, you're talking about the bottom of the credit rating. And when you start doing that, nothing may show up for the first three months or the first six months. But a year in, you're not doing as well because your default rate goes up. Whereas if you're looking at how can we help the financial future of each one of our customers? 
how can we really deal with it for them? Mm-hmm. Then you're establishing trusted relationships. You get a larger share of the wallet and you get a larger share of the opportunity to really meet their needs. And because you've established this need-based, purpose-driven relationship, your profitability goes up, your revenues go up, and you're soon at the top of the pack. But see the difference? You're focused on the customer, not on how is the guy down the street doing with his branches or that woman in Texas who's number one and how do we beat her and become number one ourselves? Mm -hmm. Definitely more purpose-driven. When you described the paradox and the, the, the dramatic changes that are taking place today and how a great leader is more flexible within that, it seems like there another pitfall that could come up is a leader who is so aware of the changing circumstances that they don't have an ongoing consistent focus, that they're, they're changing with the wind and creating mixed messages or conflicting priorities or just too many unfocused priorities that can confuse their team. You're absolutely right. Going with purpose, what's our actual work and what's our purpose, is also a characteristic of superior leaders to make a long-term plan and then short-term plans to accomplish the long-term objective. And what that means is that when you look at the entire landscape, the trends that may occur, and then you start to plan, how are we going to prepare for an uncertain future? You're not uh, changing with the wind or adding so many options that none of them could possibly be accomplished. Ultimately, you have to make your bets. But you're making your bets on a much more informed basis more systemically, and you're including many more people's voices, not as a compromise, but as a collaborative in choosing what bets to make. And therefore, because you're using the combined wisdom of the group, you're more likely to make the right bets. Well, that makes perfect sense. Now, you and your firm, Burnham Rosen, teach these principles to uh, large companies and organizations in industries and governments around the world. We do. Primarily, you're doing private training for different organizations, but there are a few times a year that you make a public workshop available to the public, and you have a couple that are coming up in the next few months. That's right. There's one in uh, London in June and one in Boston in June, and typically, Leaders from a wide variety of organizations go to those programs. And it's always a wonderful opportunity for them to get to know leaders from other organizations to really find out how these principles would apply to themselves and to their role. So they're always gratifying, marvelous experiences, I think, for everybody. Well, I personally participated in a workshop in late 2010 and found it extremely helpful, in fact, life-changing. And so I would encourage our listeners to check that out, and we will provide information on both the Boston and London workshops and the show notes for this episode, which is going to be at engagingleader.com forward slash 30. 
Well, David, it has been a pleasure. I really appreciate you joining us today and sharing with us about your research. Thank you, Jesse. It was a pleasure for me to be here. That was David Burnham from the Burnham Rosen Group, a researcher for over 40 years on superior leadership in industry, academia, and governments around the world. If you're interested in the workshops in Boston or London, I encourage you to sign up immediately as they tend to sell out fast. You can find out more at burnrose.com or in our show notes for this episode, which you'll find at engagingleader.com forward slash 30. And that's also where you can leave comments or questions, or you can engage with me on Facebook or Twitter. Don't miss our next episode when we'll look at the leadership secrets that helped Raoul Amundsen and his team be the first explorers to reach the South Pole. Special thanks to Jim Munchback, Electric Eye, Lester Nine, and Perry Noble for the five-star reviews you recently wrote on iTunes. That is so valuable for in helping new listeners discover our show. Thank you for taking the time to recommend us. And for our other listeners, you too can leave a review at engagingleader.com forward slash iTunes. This is a production of Aspendale Communications, a consulting firm where my colleagues and I partner with mid-size and large employers to attract top talent, engage employees, and deliver superior business results. Find out more at aspendalecommunications.com. Our thanks to Joe Sherwood, our producer, James Marler, our sound engineer, Cliff Ravenscraft, our podcasting advisor, Rick Tarrant, our announcer, and Christopher Seal, who composed our theme music. Until next time, remember, whether you realize it or not, you are always communicating and leading. Let's make the most of our opportunities to engage the people we care about. Mm-hmm.